Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Three lies about sin that's been told to our generation. I want to start off by reading in Matthew chapter 22, uh, beginning with verse 1. This is what the Bible says, Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged the marriage for his son. And he sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. So this is literally a picture of Jesus sending out his ministers, which if you're saved, you are a minister. I don't know if you knew that, but if you're saved, I'm not saying you're all in the full-time ministry and you're part of the five-fold gifts that God has given to the church, but I'm saying if you're saved, 2 Corinthians 5 says, you have a ministry of reconciling the world to God. And so this is what Jesus is is, is, is speaking on. He's saying, I'm about to send out my delegation of ministers that are going to reconcile the world to God. And he says, he sent them out and there were some that are, were not willing to come, which shows you that, you know, there's a doctrine that is very prevalent, especially amongst reform circles in that uh, whoever, whoever God chooses, that's who's going to get saved. And those whom God has not chosen, they don't have the ability to even accept Christ. And this one parable totally nullifies that whole argument because the Bible says that these people were invited to the wedding, but the Bible says they were not willing to come. It doesn't say God was not willing to invite them. It says they were not willing to come. So if everyone, anyone ever brings that up, you can just point them to Matthew 22 and, and just show them that one parable. It totally debunks the whole thing. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. They mocked it. And they went their own ways. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Those are the, the reactions that people, the negative reactions that people will have with the gospel. Some will make light of it. Some will just like, ah, eh, you know, that's nice. Nice little stories to keep people uh, warm in life. Others will make, will mock it. They'll scoff it. You know, the Bible says that Paul preached the gospel at a place uh, in Athens. And the scripture says that some of them believed. Others mocked him when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. And still others said, you know what, we'll hear you again on the matter. So there's different reactions people are going to have to the gospel. The gospel is an offense, Paul says. It's an offense to many. But to those who are the called, it is the salvation of God. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burnt up their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite into the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all that they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, this is important. This is what I'm reading this parable for. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. 
And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I read this parable, uh, and before I explain it, I have to give you a bit of Jewish history here. In Jewish weddings, they, first of all, were not a one-day thing. They were prolonged, sometimes a whole week. Uh, and so in Jewish weddings, when a guest would arrive, they would actually hand them a wedding garment so that they can have like a theme or whatever. So they would hand them a, a wedding garment. You have to wear this if you want to come in. And so the Bible talks about a, fee, a wedding feast being had in this parable. And there was a bunch of people that had on the wedding garments. But the king noticed that there was one who had refused to wear the wedding garment that had been provided by the master of the feast. The wedding garment in this story represents putting on Jesus Christ. Now, this story can be preached from different angles, you know, that Christ is the only way to salvation, which is true. That this man tried to make heaven without putting on Christ, without accepting Christ into his heart. And that's why when the king saw him, hey, you don't have Christ, you don't have the right garments on. You've come in through another way, and there ain't another way to accessing heaven. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I alone am the life. And whoever desires to come to the Father has to come by me. And so you can preach it that way. But another, you know, even, even in talking about that, when you put on Christ, Romans 13, Paul says that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So when you get saved, when you put on Christ, you're part of putting on Christ is putting away your relationship with the flesh. You're putting on holiness. You're putting on righteousness. And so I say all that to say, this man was trying to access kingdom benefits without having first consecrated his life to the kingdom lifestyle. This man wanted all the benefits of the kingdom of heaven. He wanted the blessing. He wanted healing. He wanted uh, the prosperity. He wanted the riches of heaven without adhering to its fundamental requirements. And holiness is a fundamental requirement that is required to accessing the blessing that God has to offer. Holy, I'm going to repeat that. Holiness is a fundamental requirement to accessing God's blessing. And so there's a lot of preaching that doesn't, they never talk about sin. They might turn it around and say, you know, some of you have weird quirks or personality quirks or some of you have character flaws. They never mention the word sin, neither do they deal with the severity of sin. You know, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin brings a reproach on any people. Sin brings a curse on any people. So there's no way to actually read the Bible and come out with a light regard concerning sin. And any preaching that gets you to be comfortable in sin or makes sin palatable or more appealing or less repulsive to you is a doctrine and it's a preaching that's birthed in hell. And it has to be rejected with full force. Any doctrine, I'm going to repeat that, that makes you comfortable in sin or makes sin more palatable or it makes it... Uh, 
more tolerable for you is a is a preaching and it's a doctrine it's a teaching that you know that the devil is trying to circulate in the church because the devil knows if i can just you know ecclesiastes says it's the little foxes that spoil the whole vine if i can just allow them to tolerate a little bit of sin i don't need them to commit adultery i just need them to look at another woman to lust for them in their in their in their heart because the Bible says that when a man lusts, you know, I don't need them to sleep with them, just have them lust. And Jesus said that he that does that has committed adultery in his heart and is guilty of adultery. So the devil wants to make it tolerable for you to accept sin. And the way he does that is he tells you it's impossible to break free from sin. There's a lot of preaching. The only time they talk about sin is to tell you that, you know, it's not realistic that we're ever going to break free from sin. It's not realistic that we can ever be set free from sin. You know, the devil tries to get people to accept the lie that living a sinful life is a normal part of life. How many of you know we're all sinners? Nothing we can do about it, you know. We were, we were just born this way. Yeah, you were born that way. David said you were conceived in sin, but you have to be born again another way. You might, you know, people say, you know, we're just born in sin. Nothing we can do about it. Have you forgot John 3? Have you forgot the actual crux of the gospel message that, you know, they've watered down. They've diluted the gospel message into telling people that it's all about just forgiveness. God's forgiven you. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't God's forgiven you. The gospel is you have been born again. Not only are my sins blotted out, not only am I forgiven, not only have I been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but the Bible says that I have been born again by water and by spirit, and I have a new nature. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. Ezekiel the prophet is prophesying of what being born again would look like. He takes out the heart of stone. He extracts the sinful nature. He removes the thing that had uh, an allure for the, for, the, for the things of this world. The thing that was uh, attracted and magnetized towards the lusts of the flesh and the appetites of human nature and sinful nature. The Bible says he takes away the heart of stone and then he takes the heart of flesh, the, the heart that God has made, and he puts it in us so that we're now willing to walk into the commandments of God. And then he goes a step further and says, and he sprinkles his Holy Spirit on us. Sorry, he sprinkles his word on us. He cleanses us by his word. Ephesians 5 says that. And then he puts his Holy Spirit on us and in us so that we're not only willing to walk in God's commandments, we now have power with God to walk in God's commandments. You know, anybody that tells you, you know, how many of you know in the, it, it, while we're still in this body, we're still going to sin every day and all the time? They're really, whether they realize it or not, they're saying the temptation you have right now is stronger than what God has put in you. They're telling you, whether they know it or not, when they say that, how many of you know temptations comes and there's, you know, we're, we're going to sin every day, nothing we can do about it, thank God for his grace, as if grace is just like a covering for sin. Grace is not a covering for sin. Because the Bible says in John 1, Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Well, if he was full of grace... It wasn't because Jesus was going around sinning all the time and he needed extra grace because he was such a sinner. Jesus never sinned. He was in all points tempted as we are, if, uh, Hebrews 4 says, and yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. He's the sinless 
spotless lamb of God that came to take away the sins of this world. He was pointed in all, he was tempted in all points and yet he was without sin. But how was he full of grace? The grace is not a license to sin or a covering for sin. God's grace is an empowerment to go and sin no more. So the devil tries to get people to accept the lie that sin is a normal part of life and it's impossible to live a holy life. He, and if the devil has successfully convinced you into believing that it's impossible to live holy, it's impossible to live godly, it's impossible to keep to the pathway of perfection and holiness, then he has successfully gained a great victory in your life. You'll never break free from sin like that. That's why, you know, this preaching that I'm telling you right today is not some new doctrine that came out in the 1980s that, you know, a few hyper uh, holiness people started. no. This has been, first of all, from Bible times and then all throughout church history. It's only in recent days that we've had this hyper grace message pop out that tells people that it's not realistic to live a holy life and that you have to just rest in his grace, brother. You're going to make mistakes all the time and you got to rest in his grace. I'm not saying that... You know, you, you don't have the ability to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, God will forgive you. If you sin, God will forgive you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if you have sinned, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of all your sin and then to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you have sinned, God's faithful. He's just, he's merciful to cleanse you from unrighteousness. But his mercy, his grace is not just sufficient enough to forgive. His grace and his mercy creates in you an inner force to resist sin in the flesh so that you don't have to sin every day. You don't have to be a victim of long-standing sin, of, of addiction, of constant falling into the same traps of the devil. I want to tell you today, this is the whole point of this broadcast. If you struggle with sin... The struggle can end here and now. That's not a hyperbolic statement. That's not an exaggeration. That's not a, 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 a get your hopes up type of statement. That's not me trying to, to, to make a shock statement just to get more views. No, that is a Bible truth. If you struggle with sin, there's more than enough power with God's Holy Spirit that's been deposited on the inside of you already to break free from the clutch of sin and enter in to the pathway of holiness and keep to the pathway of holiness. Living holy, and this is where people get, they, they get messed up. They see, they hear me preach like this and they say, this man, he, you know, he, he preaches like we never even have temptation. I never said you won't have temptation. You'll have temptation until Jesus takes you home. But being tempted doesn't mean you're sinning. And living holy doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, your spirit is willing. Your spirit wants to please God. Your flesh is where the war stems from. There is a war, whether you know this or not, there is a war that has been waged against you and it's not even the devil. It's your own flesh. Your flesh wants to, it, 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 it wants to sin. It's, it's, um, 
it's it's it, it's attracted to sin. The Bible says in Galatians five, the the flesh and the spirit are constantly in opposition to one another. But Galatians five doesn't say, and so we're hopeless. It says, but you have the spirit in you so that you don't have to fulfill the desires of the flesh live in the spirit don't only don't only live in the spirit but walk in the spirit so that you don't have to fulfill you don't have to fulfill the desires of the flesh so it doesn't say you're helpless against the desires of the flesh it says you don't actually have to fulfill this might be the very first time you've ever heard this because your whole lifetime you maybe grew up in a church where they said it's going to be a lifetime struggle but I'm here to put down to debunk those garbage theories that aren't scriptural, they're dogmatic, and to tell you right here and right now, if there's any sin that you've been unable to break free from, the blood of Jesus Christ has more than enough power to sever the chains of sin on your life and to allow you, empower you to walk free and walk in holiness. So it's not that you'll never be tempted again. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But he says, pray that you enter not into temptation. You know what that tells you? There's a way to not enter in or fall victim or constantly bow to the pressure of temptation. Isn't that wonderful news? I don't understand why people have a hard time. And I'm telling you, there's, there are people, I'm sure it will be in the comment section, whether live or on the replay, where they're going to, you know, they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're not going to be happy with this type of word. And I'm convinced that whenever someone's not happy with this type of word, it's because they're happy with their life of sin. They're, they're attracted to it. They don't want to give it up. You know, there's people. They, they, they don't have, they're not married, but they're living with their girlfriend. They have two kids and whatnot. They hear the gospel message, and they believe it, but they don't want to actually commit their life because there's too many things they got to set right. There's too many things that they know the gospel that if they if they buy onto this thing hook line and sinker they're going to have to you know bear fruit worthy of repentance. And so they they reject the whole message based on the sacrifices that they have to make. It's the same thing when you preach a doctrine like this. When you preach the doctrine of holiness, that God's given us more than enough power to walk upright. You know, Titus chapter 2, verse 15, the scripture says that the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to men. And then it doesn't end there. It doesn't say it's just brought salvation, but ultimately on the earth, our lives aren't going to look any different. He moves on. Brother Titus moves on to say that, uh, or actually it's Paul writing to Titus. Brother Paul moves on to, to exhort Titus and says, uh, the grace of God has appeared to all men. And then he says what the grace of God does, the function for the grace of God, teaching us that we should deny ungodliness and worldliness and worldly lust, and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Well, God would never tell you to do something if it were impossible to do. God would never tell you to fly if he hadn't given you power to fly. That's why there's no scripture that says you should fly. Because God, there's no point to doing it right now. But there are scriptures that say you should be holy even as your heavenly father is holy. And so oftentimes, every, oftentimes when sin is preached or holiness is preached, it's always preached from the negative sense. That we can't get it, we can't have it. Yeah, the scriptures are there, but how many of you know that's why grace exists? Because it's not realistic. Why would Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that there's no temptation, going back to temptation, that there's, it's going to happen, 
but you don't have to fall victim to it. Paul says there's no temptation that has come that has come to you, that has overcome you, such as is common to all men. And God is faithful. He's faithful. So that not only uh, can you overcome the temptation, but he provides a way of escape. Listen to this, James chapter one. I wanna read this scripture because this perfectly encapsulates everything I'm trying to say. And then I'm gonna get into the three lies, which I might be getting ahead of myself right now, but whatever. James chapter one, listen to this, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And let nobody say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anybody. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But beloved, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So James is saying you can endure. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. You can endure temptation. When people say it's impossible to stop sinning, they're ultimately saying that temptation is stronger than the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers you not to sin. And remember, 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is he that lives in you than anything in this world. So it's a violation of scripture. And you'll never walk in victory over sin if, if you believe that it's impossible. Imagine if we were... A, a, a sports team, and we're going out to, to play against another team. And my pep talk to you was, brothers, sisters, I know that we have worked hard all week in practice, and we've strategized, we've watched tape and video upon video, strategizing against the enemy's uh, strategies and all that, and, 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 and we've worked hard all week, we've done long hours, and, but I want to let you know it's impossible to beat this team. We are not going to win today. Do you think that that team is going to have the mentality that's necessary to actually win a victory against the other team? No. So how can we expect Christians, people in our churches, to actually have a, a, a lion mindset in our dealings with sin if they're told they're constantly going to fall? They're constantly going to be weak against sin. Consecration is the foundational step to everything else the Bible has. The reason why I'm going to take time to talk about this today is because without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Holiness is not a Christian hobby that we have, that whenever we see fit or we feel like doing it, we can. Holiness is a fundamental command of the scriptures. The Bible says, without it, nobody will see the Lord. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the Lord. First Peter says, be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy. Doesn't say, hey, you should try to do it. No, be holy. You should be holy. Deuteronomy 28, if you'll diligently hearken to the voice of, the, of God, then all these blessings will come on you. You can't have the blessings until you've done the first thing, which is accept the call to holiness. If you're a Christian, you've not just been called to win souls. You've not just been called... To, to, to the body of Christ. You've been called to a lifestyle of holiness. The Bible says, let me read it. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're just joining me now, it'd be a great service to me if you, uh, if you share this broadcast. You'd be a great help. And I'll thank you in advance for doing it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. 
your sanctification, that each of you should abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, which your body is your vessel, in sanctification and in honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all such, as we forewarned you and testified. For God did not call you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God did not call you to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this, what's, what's this? The call to holiness. Whoever rejects the call to holiness does not reject man, but he is rejecting God who has given us his Holy Spirit. Why? To fulfill, to walk in this call to holiness. So I want you to write that in the comment section. Holiness is a call. Is a general call for all believers. Or actually write this. I'm called to a life of holiness. Or I'm called to holiness. I am called to holiness. Revelation 2 and 3. Every letter Jesus told John to write to the churches in, in uh, Revelation 2 through 3. The seven churches. Every single letter began with, I know your works. I know your works. Salvation has been preached too far. You know, how many of you know it's, it's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace through faith. Yes, salvation cannot be earned by works. Salvation is both a rest from works and a call to works. Salvation is both a rest from works and a call to works. It's a rest from works that are inspired by a desire to earn salvation for that's an impossible task. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, but by his grace alone. But salvation is a call to works because genuine faith in Christ will produce the fruit of holiness. We read that in Philippians 1.11. The Bible says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So the fruit of salvation includes holiness. So salvation is both a rest from works. We can't earn it. By works, it's by grace through faith. But once salvation, once you're genuinely born again and you have a born again spirit in you, you'll, you'll feel the call to works. You will bear fruit. Let me read this because I want to drive this point so strong because there's a demonic doctrine that has permeated the church in, in recent decades and it's given people a lax attitude towards sin. And they, snee they snooze on it. And it's, it's hurt the church overall. Because look at Achan in Joshua 7. One man's sin affected the entire, the entire Israel nation. Israelite nation. One man's sin. And God said that you're doomed to destruction because there's an accursed thing in the camp. A church that tolerates sin is a powerless church. Before you can be strong on the devil, you have to be strong on sin. Too many people that are trying to resist the devil and they haven't submitted to God first. James chapter 4, if you read the full verse, it says that um, we are to submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But then it says, draw near to God. So it tells you how to submit to God. It doesn't just say submit to God and well, how do you do that? Draw near to him in holiness, in truth, in spirit and in truth. And it says, cleanse your hands, 
You sinners, that's what James 5 says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your minds, you double-minded. Don't be like the Israelites were in the days of Elijah. They were one day on the Baal's side and then one day on God's side. Elijah got fed up. He brought them to Mount Carmel. And this is my challenge to you today. If you've been flirting with sin, if you've not cut sin out of your life, if you're still toying around with it, be sure your sin's going to find you out. And when the sin is exposed, the Bible says, we read in James 1, when sin comes forth, it brings forth death. That's why Elijah wasn't easy on it. He said, hey, quit tossing to and fro. Quit being double-minded. How long are you going to alter between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Stop riding the fence. The, stop riding the fence. The biggest loser on earth is not the guy in the world. It's the guy that is holding on to the world and holding on to the church and to Christ at the same time. And I'm not saying he's a loser in like, you know, he, he's a, 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 a no good thing. I mean, he's a loser in that he's going to lose all throughout life because he's double-minded. Make it a, a, a point today. Resolve in your spirit. Today is the last day I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Today's the last day I'm going to have premarital sexual in, uh, interactions with others. Today's the last day I'm watching pornography. Today's the last day I'm going to be, a, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal. Today's the last day I'm going to avoid my taxes. Today's the last day that I'm going to tolerate sin in my life. You tolerate sin, sin will, it's like a weed. I just, you know, we just purchased a home and I, I just inherited another man's grass and, uh, you know, I always thought it was funny growing up that men, father, dads especially, you know, they just love their grass. They love their grass. Well, now I bought a house and I, I love my grass. <laughs> I don't know what it is. There's like something that kicks into a man's brain. The moment they buy a house and their grass, they're like, that's my baby. My kid could be crying inside wanting yogurt or something. I'd be like, no, I got to tend to my grass. I'm just kidding. But it, there's something that clicks into our minds. I don't know what it is, but we just want a nice grass. Well, I've got a deal now with all, and I hope the guy's not watching. He probably isn't. But... I got to deal with all the weeds, all the weeds that he let grow. He tolerated these things, and now the weeds have a firm root in the ground, and now I've got to deal with all through pesticides or whatever else I have to do to get rid of the weeds because they've taken root. Where if he had just, the moment he saw a weed come up, snipped it out, uprooted it, and dealt with it, it wouldn't have spread. That's how sin is. It's a cancer to the human spirit. It's a cancer, it's a venom, it's a poison. And if it's left unchecked, it's going to overwhelmingly try to take over every single part of your life. That's why John the Baptist, why do you think John the Baptist was, was uh, beheaded? Because he was, he was openly calling out sin in his society. You know how fed up I am with preachers saying, you know, I can't stand that preacher. He's, he talks about politics too much. Talks about politics too much? You have abortion laws that are over the last 50 years taken over the United States and Canada. The church that not, didn't talk about politics, they said, you know, let's, that's their domain, this is our domain. A, a, a real church, a truly strong church is going to affect the society around them. Not, and we stay clear from politics here. Really? And no one, then don't complain. 
When all these officials that are being elected are knuckleheads that are, are, are implementing lawless, lawless societies and, and unrighteous legislations contending, you know, in Canada, a quiet church is going to make a loud devil in the world. But a loud church is going to quiet down the devil so that he shuts his mouth. That's what we need. We need people that aren't going to say, I know, it's a shame. No, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of this world. If you don't open up your mouth, the world remains in darkness. That's why Jesus said, don't let God light you up and then set your little light under a bed. Put it on a lampstand. Let it be open. Show it to the world. Tell them. How could you have people that parade every single June in the streets contending for uh, uh, their, their gay pride? You have people that do that. And I love the gays. I, I pray for their salvation. I pray for them. I pray. We, 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 we've seen homosexual people get saved and delivered and walk free from it. I'm not trying to bash one group over another. I'm just saying, how come they're so openly proud? And then we, well, I don't, I don't know what the world would say if we, if, we, if we actually revealed our position on this. Are you serious? When did you get castrated? We need preachers. And if you're a preacher right now, maybe there's preachers watching right now that kind of had that attitude. We, we need preachers that carry a bold attitude. That's what John did. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the ways of the Lord. Make his path straight. Listen to this, verse 7. Then the multitudes came out to be baptized by him. And he said, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to make children up to Abraham, raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And he said, now the axe is laid at the root of your trees. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The weaker you are on sin, the stronger sin will be on you. But the stronger you are on sin, the weaker it'll be on you. So let's go through the three lies our generation's been told. Number one, and I mentioned it before, but I'm going to get through the point, is we all sin every day. Nothing we can do about it. We're always going to sin as long as we're in this earthly body. It's impossible to live holy. Well, why don't you just come out and say God's a liar? Why don't you just come out and say God's untruthful? He's deceptive. He gets people's hopes up. His whole, this whole book, I can't trust it. Because he's the one that said, that you can be holy. He's the one that said that you can walk free. He's the one that's, read Romans chapter 6. This isn't my word. And then everybody likes to quote Romans 7. Well, you know, Paul said, you know, I have this war going on on the inside of me. And, and my flesh wants something, but my spirit wants something else. And I'm not free to do it. Who's going to free me from this body of death? And it's like Romans 7 is like their, their golden chapter of the Bible. They've memorized it from verse 1 down to verse uh, what is it, 25. They've memorized it all because that, they, you know, it's funny how people are content living in sin. They'll find every scripture and twist it a little bit just to make it, so. take it out of context, twist it and make it suitable so that they can explain away. Well, no brother, you see, this is why, you know, it's not real. 
First of all, study Romans 7. Before we even talk about Romans 6, because people think Paul was like double-minded, bipolar. That he was like a, a split personality disorder kind of guy. Like he writes Romans 6, he talks about dominion over sin. He talks about we don't have to live in sin. He talks about being dead to sin. He talks about being a slave to righteousness and fulfilling God's plan and all that. And then Romans 7 comes along, he's like, oh, I forgot actually, you know what, the other day I didn't have any of this. So, you know what I'm saying is not really realistic. Uh, you're gonna... And as if like the Bible was written, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Paul wrote Romans as a continuous letter. There was no chapter or verse division. That man did. Man did that. And there's nothing wrong with it. We did it because we needed reference systems so that we can say Romans 6 this, Romans 5 this, Romans, you know, we, we can reference scriptures. But there was never any chapter and verse divisions when the Bible was originally written. So when you read chapter 6, 7, and 8, read it as one continuous uh, message, actually read the entire book of Romans and you're going to find out that Romans 7 wasn't this like little asterisk fine print at the bottom of the page where Paul says, oh, by the way, everything I said is negated by this one chapter. Paul, if you read it in context, is actually discussing his, his nature before being born again. You remember when Jesus appeared to Paul? He said, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? Jesus said, you're fighting me. Why are you fighting me? Give in. That suggests that Paul knew the right thing. Even though he was vehemently and violently persecuting the church at the time, there was something in Paul that he knew this was the wrong thing to do. But his flesh had dominion. That's why Jesus appears and he says, why are you still fighting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then instantly, you know, Paul's converted. He gets baptized a few days later. And then the, the story continues. Romans 7 is a description of that internal battle that he used to have. He's saying, I, I have this law. I had this law in my flesh that I, I was at enmity against God. But then I had the, the law of my conscience that was bearing witness with the law of God. And I knew I was doing the wrong thing. Who was going to free me from this body of death? How does he finish the, the chapter? I mean, people need to finish the chapter. Who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but now walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So he's not saying there's no more condemnation, brother. So we, you know, we're still tied and attached and bound to this law of sin and death. But how many of you know we don't have to condemn ourselves because Jesus doesn't condemn us? He's saying, no, the law of God's spirit in us has set us free from the laws of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. The law, understand this. The law was implemented temporarily as a tutor to show man how wicked we are without God. And in the law, there was no redemption. There was just atonement for year after year after year. It never got rid of the sin nature. It never dealt with the very core of man's problems. 
It just allowed them to have some sort of structure until Christ came. Read Galatians 3 and 4. It talks about that. The law served as a teacher to point us to Christ. The law confined all of us under sin. It showed every human being, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You're helpless on your own. The wages of sin is death. And the free gift of God is life eternal by Christ Jesus. That was the purpose of the law. So Paul says that we've been set free from the laws of sin and death because of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And he says what the law couldn't do, Jesus did. The blood of Jesus did. The Holy Spirit did. He cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews chapter 9 says he has removed in us the consciousness of our sin. That's why I always preach I'm not sin conscious. I don't think about my mistakes of the past. I don't think about sin. I think I'm conscious about what the Bible says, that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. In uh, 1 uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm not sin conscious anymore. I'm righteousness conscious. I'm conscious of his indwelling presence in me. I'm conscious of what the blood of Jesus did for me. That I who was far off, disconnected from God, a foreigner to the covenants of Israel, I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood, you know how God says in Isaiah 119, though your sins are as crimson, I'll make them as white as snow. Though they are red like scarlet, I'll make them as white as wool. That's what I think on. I think on All of my sin, all of my wrongdoings of my past, all of my faults, all of it has been laid on Jesus. And all of Christ's perfection, all of Christ's holiness, all of Christ's righteousness, and his power that he had on the earth to live without sin has been conferred on me. That's the consciousness I have. And that's why I can live and resist sin everywhere I go. Listen to Romans 6. What shall we say then? Because actually, let's read Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's where people use. That's the scripture they use. How many of you know you can't out-sin God's grace? Actually, you can. It's called hell. That's what hell is for. It's someone who never stopped sinning. Someone who never repented. Never turned the other way from sin. Refused to abide by by God's standards. And then he dies. Now until he dies, God's grace is available and readily there to accept, to to change him, to transform him, to wash him. But if that person never turns, the scripture makes it very clear. There's a real hell to shun and a real heaven to gain. That's what hell is for. Hell is for people that have, even though they've had time and time again, chance and chance again, to turn from sin and turn to God, they have rejected the message of holiness. Going back to that parable I started this broadcast out with. There was a man at the wedding feast that did not have the wedding garment on that they handed out when every guest came into the wedding feast. And Jesus saw him and he said, how did you get in here? That wedding garment is putting on Jesus, putting on holiness, putting on, putting on God's standards. And the, 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 Jesus said, how did you get in here without putting on the wedding garment? And he said, what, what was the punishment? Take him out into a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and a blackness that could even be felt. 
So that's where that's where they go. Oh, you know, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I mean, even though it doesn't matter how much. I remember when I told this story before, there was a preacher I saw on Instagram. He literally came out. He literally came out on Sunday morning and he had a suit jacket on. He took off his suit jacket and on his shirt, he had every single sin that you can think of. Adulterous, liar, theft, uh, disobedient, fornicator, whatever. Everything, angry, envious, everything you can think of. He had marked, he had sharpied on his shirt, his white shirt. And he said, I want to let you guys know, no matter how evil you think you are, I'm the worst sinner in this room. And I was like, well, then you probably should put the mic down and sit down. Because the Bible literally says that uh, if a man desires the position of an overseer, a pastor, or some sort of ministry, he, there are certain standards that you have to uphold. So if you're all those things, your board should probably sit you down and fire you because that's, <laughs> you need rehab. Those are serious things. Adulterous, liar. So I want you to know that I'm, wor- I'm worse than any of you in this place. And he was trying to say, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That God's grace keeps me anyways. What a perversion of what Paul's trying to say in Romans 6. Because look at what he says. Actually, someone just, Christopher just wrote a great scripture. Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. If I'm not mistaken, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father will. So it's not just about confession. You know, God knows my heart, Amen. He knows my heart. Uh, you're living with someone that's not your boyfriend. You have no plans to get married. You, you, you know, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and you're just saying God knows your heart? Yeah, God knows your heart, and the Bible says by him actions are weighed. Your heart's position is expressed by the words you speak, the thoughts you think, and the actions that you do, that you perform. So it's not just God knows my heart. I've heard that so many times. It's such a scapegoat they use. God knows my heart, you know. Don't judge me by my sin just because it looks different from yours. Nobody's judging anybody. I'm just warning you that the wages of sin is death. This isn't something I haven't applied in my own life. You know, Romans 1, Romans 2 says, that you're inexcusable, O man of God, if you tell other people to stop sinning and you yourself are sinning. So I've weighed this against my own life too. I keep a firm watch over my body lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or disqualified. I don't preach this because it's popular. First of all, this message ain't even popular in the first place. Listen, if I wanted to get a massive platform right now, I'd just preach anything people want to hear. Tell them that, you know, it's okay. God understands your heart. You know, I won't judge you by your sin because it looks different than mine. What a, what a scapegoat. So line number one is we, we, we all sin every day. Let me read Romans 6. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul literally addresses it. Should we continue then because grace abounds? Should we just continue sinning? Certainly not. How much more clear do you want to get? How much more clear? If I'm sure if there were capital letters, Paul would have put it in capital, capital letters. It actually has an exclamation point in my Bible. Certainly not, exclamation point. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? See, that's the problem with a lot of Christians. That's why they say we sin every day. They still think they're alive to sin. 
The Bible says you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Hallelujah. Walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin, that sin nature we had, might be done away with. That we should no longer be a slave of sin. Come on, this is straight gospel preaching. I don't even have to add to that. That's just Paul's words verbatim. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. I want you to write that down in the comment section as a confession of faith. I am not a slave of sin. I am not a slave of sin. I'm not a slave of sin. I don't have to sin. I don't have to struggle with sin. I don't have to endure sin. I don't have to tolerate sin. I don't have to say this is just my battle, brothers. I don't have to battle sin. It's been done away with. It's been crucified from me. He who has died has been. This is Romans 6, 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Totally flies in the face of a lot of garbage that's preached in modern Christianity. Totally flies in the, the face of it. How do you even preach that whole like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do here. We just rest in his. How could you preach that? Having, I mean, do you, did you buy a Bible with Romans 6 and 7 and 8 ripped out on discount section at Walmart? Because I don't see how you can actually skip through these verses and still consider yourself to be bound to sin, addicted to this. You know how many Christians? I'm a recovering alcoholic. It's been 10 years. How are you still recovering? It's no And you keep saying that. I'm recovering. I'm recovering. It's not recovering. It's recovered. It's not even recovered. It's crucified. It's I'm dead to those things. They, they, they don't have a hold on me anymore. I've gripped on to Jesus. I've put on the Lord Jesus. I've put off the old man along with its fleshly lusts and desires. I've been renewed in the spirit of my mind. I've got the Holy Ghost on the inside of me that empowers me to live a holy, godly life in this age. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. So he died to sin once and he died to sin for all. So that in Christ, we've all died to sin. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to just be struggling every day. Paul, Paul goes on to say that, you know, ultimately you got to reckon yourself or, or, or you got to recognize that the life's an uphill battle with sin, you know, and uh, it does get a little easier, you know, over time, but it doesn't, doesn't go all, it, it doesn't just all leave, you know, you, that desire to, to drink, it's always going to be there hidden down deep. Really? Because Paul doesn't say reckon yourselves to still be in a battle with sin. He says reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. 
Now, I go back to what I said before. The temptation to sin will still be there the rest of your life. But the, fact, the, the reason why Paul's saying you have to recognize yourself as being dead to sin is because he's trying to emphasize the point that you don't have to fall to the temptation anymore. You don't have to, act, you don't have to, to be a slave of that temptation. You don't have to fall victim to being a prey. Uh, 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 you don't have to fall to the pressure of that temptation. Reckon yourselves to be indeed dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. That tells you you don't have to obey temptation. You don't have to obey sin in its lust. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin, listen to this. This is, if you want to memorize a scripture today, let this be the scripture you memorize. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Well, you see, grace is just that, that covering. For, no, grace, the fact that Paul brings it up here again, it shows you even for, even more that grace is a, is a power God gives the believer to not sin anymore. He says you're not under law. Where we read before, the law was weak to set us, it couldn't set us free from sin. You're now under grace, and grace is spiritual empowerment to go and sin no more. Jesus catches the woman, or, or sorry, they catch the woman in adultery. They bring, him, they bring her to Jesus. Jesus is then asked, Moses commands us to stone her. What should we do? Jesus says, he was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. And they all slowly, from the oldest to the youngest, began to back out. And finally, no one was there but Jesus. Which shows you that Jesus was the only one without sin. Because he didn't leave. He said he was without sin, cast the first stone. They all left. Jesus was the only one there. And he, because he was without sin, could have cast the first sin. That's the beauty of this message. This message, if you're seen as like, oh, this man's just a Bible thumper, whatever. He's just making me feel bad. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm trying to make you understand that sin is an enemy of your destiny. It's a destroyer, a, something that dooms people to destruction. And if you leave it unchecked, it will produce death in every sector of your life. And without the blood of Jesus, we're helpless against it. But thank God, just like Jesus dealt with that woman caught in adultery, he didn't cast the stone. See, religion casts stones. If I was preaching this from the angle of religion, I would have said, you're all reprobate people, you're all good for nothing, we're all help. I'm not preaching it from that point, because, that angle, because it ain't biblical. The angle I'm tackling it from is that, yes, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we've fallen short of standards. Yes, the human race has been tainted by sin. But thanks be unto God, though he could have cast a stone, religion casts stones, Jesus gives grace. Grace lifts people up out of the pit and ditch that sin throws them in, sets them on the solid rock, and empowers them to walk a straight line in life. That's what Jesus did. He showed grace to that woman by doing what? I'm not going to, not only I'm not going to cast a stone at you, but go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Well, that's a little insensitive for Jesus to say, go and sin no more. It's clear that as long as she's in a human body, she's going to sin every day. 
then Jesus obviously has got his theology messed up. He was the word made flesh. He's got his theology just right. Literally the word of God incarnate. And Jesus told her, go and sin no more. You know where it seemed as it, it looks like it's insensitive to tell someone go and sin no more? When that person doesn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit that is given to us to actually go and sin no more. Then they, well, how am I supposed to do that? What do you mean? I, be strong, not in your flesh or your own power of your might. Be strong in the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. It is not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Romans 8. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. So when you totally disregard the ministry of the Holy Spirit, yeah, it's tough to swallow the word. Be holy even as I am holy. Go and sin no more. Be right, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's tough to swallow that. But when you understand that I'm not doing it in my own strength and energy, you know, in my own... What did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you think the all things... Includes everything but living a holy life? Do you think the all thing includes everything but, you know, abstaining from sin? No, it's everything. I can do all things, especially fulfill the call to holiness. So quit saying, I sin every day, I fall every day. You keep saying that as your faith is, so be it unto you. Instead, make a new declaration of faith. I have power with God to resist sin. I don't stumble every day. I live on the pathway of holiness. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I will live like Psalm 101, David makes confessions. He says, I will behave perfectly in a right way. I will walk wisely in my home. I will not entertain sin in my home. I will not entertain sin on my screen. I will not entertain sin in my ears or in my eyes. I will walk wisely in a perfect way. That's what David said. He said, he that, uh, that commits evil in my presence, him I'll cut off which I'm going to get into the, the practical ways you can live this out. Part of it is you got to monitor your surrounding, your environment. Lester Sermon tells a story. He was on a, a boat back in the day. They'd take boats to get to Australia or whatever. I think he was going to the Philippines or, or I think he was, yeah, I think he was going to the Philippines. Anyways, it was a 21-day journey. And in that boat, there was a Methodist pastor and he would open up chapel. And every time he'd open up chapel on the boat, because 21 days he used to have chapel, he would always finish his prayers, finish his service. Every time he would close his service, he would finish his service by saying, God, we're deep, deep sinners, and we sin every day, and we're sorry that we sin every day. We're such deep, deep sinners. The next day, Lester Sarbonne heard him preach. He said the same thing. Close the, prayer, close the service out with the same thing. We're deep, deep sinners, and there's nothing we could do. We sin every day. Sumrall said after a little bit, I think a week, he said, he took him aside and he said, brother, we've spent every waking moment together, literally from sunset to sun, sunrise to sundown. We haven't done anything. I mean, what are you doing after we leave? Do you have like a prostitution ring somewhere deep down in the boat? Like what's going on? We, we, I've been with you this entire time. Every waking moment they spent together, they used to converse and stuff. Where are you even having time to go and sin deep, deep, deep sin? And he took him aside and he started to, to explain to him from what I read in Romans 6 that we have dominion over sin. 
That we don't have to obey it in its lust. That Jesus gave us power to have victory over sin. Not that sin has victory over us. After a little bit, it clicked in him. That Methodist man that was a pastor in the Philippines, when nobody was opening up churches, he went on to plant a, like three churches within the year or something like that, within two years. And then he, he just went on like a church planting, church planting r- rave and told Lester Sarmo the next time he saw him, he said, ever since I caught that revelation of what you taught me, that we're not, we don't have to confess we're deep, deep sinners. We can confess the righteousness of God in us and we you know, can lay up his word in our hearts so that we don't sin against him. We can, actually, we can actually win the war against sin. Ever since I started preaching that, there's not a building big enough to hold the crowds. And he planted one, two, three, four. I don't know how many churches he planted, but at least three. He went on to, 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 to plant churches all across Manila. Why? Because a true witness delivers souls. You can tell that hypergrace crap doesn't work because nobody's delivered. They just, it just gives them a, 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 a mattress to lie in sin. It doesn't deliver anybody. That's why you know it's garbage. A true witness, true doctrine, the entrance of his word is going to bring light and it's going to break the, heart, the stronghold of, of, of darkness. Number two. So number one is we sin every day. Biggest lie. Number two lie our generation's been told. God has forgiven you of your past, present, and future sins. So rest in his grace. He's forgiven you already of your future sins. That's actually not true. Forgiveness is available for anything you may do down the line. But the only type of sin, and I've said this before, I put out a TikTok and an Instagram reel on this, and I got all kinds of pushback on it. And I said the only type of sin that God forgives is the sin that you repent of, that you turn from. And what is repentance? Repentance is changing your mind about and your attitude towards that sin. It's turning away. It's doing a 180 degree turn away from the sin. It's being disgusted with something you once were delighted in. It's being disgusted with the thing you once delighted in. That's what repentance is. And it's practically lived out. The only type of sin God forgives is repented sin. How do you know this? Jesus, what did he do? Let's read this. Jesus preached repentance. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Actually, you don't have to turn it. I'll just read it. Mark chapter 1. Now, John was put in prison, and Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message was repent and believe. John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached repentance. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness, Mark 1, 4, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John preached repentance. Skip over to Acts chapter 2. The early church preached repentance. I have no idea why... 
I mean, a basic skimming through the, the New Testament makes this, like, very evident. There's no forgiveness without repentance. There is none. There's not... For, rep, forgiveness, or the gospel is not, God, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm doing this and I'm going to keep doing this. The gospel isn't, God, I'm sorry that I'm about to do this. The gospel is, I'm sorry for what I've done. I repent. Fill me with your grace and power to walk your path now. Give me grace to never do it again. That's the gospel. When it's truly planted in a human, that's, what, that's, that's the type of fruit it produces. Listen to this, Acts 2.38. Then Peter, after he preached his Pentecostal sermon, he preached, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, uh, Peter preached repentance. Now skip over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Verse 30, Paul preaching in Athens. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. You know, he overlooked your past, all the things you did. He overlooks it. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. So don't tell me that it's, you know, God forgives any type of sin, even if you keep on indulging in it, and you have no change of attitude towards it, you're just going to... That's such demonic doctrine that's going to send more people to hell than any other doctrine. The gospel is repent and believe. Ezekiel 3, tell the wicked he should turn from his ways. If he doesn't turn from his ways, not if he doesn't believe on Jesus, if he doesn't turn, belief in Christ produces turning from sin. I don't know how we can... There's too many, like, you know, this guy's preaching a doctrine. He's preaching a doctrine of works, salvation of works. No, I'm not saying that we're trying to work out our, work, work up our salvation. We work out our salvation. You can't work up salvation. What's the difference? I'm not doing these things because I want to earn God's favor. God has shown me favor in Christ. Now I'm working out my salvation. That's what Paul was saying. We're not working up our salvation. We're working out our salvation. We're expressing our salvation. And holiness is an expression of salvation. Repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. John the Baptist preached. For whoever covers his sins will never prosper. But he that confesses his sin, and that's it. No, confesses and forsakes his sin. He shall have mercy. So mercy is not given to the one who says, I'm sorry that I'm going to keep on doing this though. Mercy is given to the one who says, God, I screwed up, but I, I turn from that. I hate that thing. I don't want to ever do it again. Give me power to, to live right. Ezekiel 3 says, if the wicked does not turn, he will die in his sin. His blood is on his hands. Luke 13, listen to this. <laughs> I mean, you can't escape it. It's all over the Bible. Luke chapter 13, listen to this. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worth sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Because the culture back then was, oh, bad things happened to them because they're really bad sinners. We're, we're not bad. We're good people. Doesn't matter if you think you're good or not. Your <laughs> acceptance in God's view 
in God's eyes, in God's sight, is not based on any good deeds you've ever done. Your acceptance in the beloved, your, your uh, entrance into God's favor was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of our works of righteousness, the Bible says, are like dirty rags in comparison with God's standard of righteousness. All of our works that we've ever done, you can give a million dollars to the church tomorrow. It will not buy you a place in heaven. Only faith in Christ will we'll, we'll do that. That's why he was saying, do you think they were worse sinners and you think you guys are good people because that didn't happen to you? No, 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 no. You're all sinners. And unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. You'll always be... Uh, you'll always be a magnet for trouble. That's what Jesus is saying. Those troublesome happen. Troublesome things happen and continuously happen. You know, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that uh, the book of Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. People, you know, they always say, you know, before I came to Christ, I had things going so well. Then I came to Christ and everything's been downwards, but it's going to be worth it one day. And they, they make it like joining Jesus was, the, was a step down in life. When in reality, my testimony is, life was hard when I served the devil. Life was really hard when I was hooked on drugs. Life was very, I was a magnet for trouble. Now, because of Christ, I'm a magnet for blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. If you think you're good, and that's why you were spared of that, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Jesus preached repentance. Repentance is a change of direction, a change of mind, a change of attitude. It's not feeling bad for what you've done. It's, it's a cessation of those things that you were doing. It's quitting. If Christ has set you free, it's no longer becoming a, putting on the yoke of slavery that sin put on you in the first place. Titus, uh, Titus, the book of Titus, it says, they profess to know God, but indeed they deny him. Being abominable disobedient and disqualified for every good work. This is the lie that is pitched to our generation. God forgives your past, present, and future sins. That it doesn't matter how you live, your future sins are already forgiven. You actually don't even have to ask. It's already forgiven. It's already forgiven. And to use a scripture in Hebrews that says that Christ has been a sacrifice once and for all. Yes, his sacrifice is once and for all. But if I decide tomorrow to sleep with other women and do heroin for the next 365 days, I have, I didn't lose my salvation. I have forfeited my salvation. I have, I, you know, they, they use that scripture. The one who comes to me, will, nobody will snatch them from my hand. It's impossible to, nobody will snatch them, meaning it won't be an outside force. But you yourself can walk out. And God's a gentleman. He'll let you do it. He don't want you to do it. He'll be like the shepherd, the good shepherd that will come uh, leave the 99 to come bring you back in. He'll be like the prodigal father. You know, everybody talks about the prodigal son. Prodigal just means wasteful and lavish. There's the prodigal son, but there's the prodigal father because the moment the son came back, he, he lavished his blessing on him. And the father, the Bible says, when he saw the son, he ran to him. It's the only time God is pictured as running in the Bible. So God has that attitude. He's merciful, gracious, compassionate, ever, ever at your door and knocking, saying, come back, come back, son, come back, daughter. There's grace. 
I'm gonna, I'll overlook it. I don't care what you've done. I just want you. God will do that. But there's far too many that profess to know God, but indeed they deny him. In action, they deny him. Their mouth says one thing, but their hand is not plowing the plow. It's plowing the plow of sin. That's the second lie. Number three lie, and I finish with this, the severity of sin. Preachers are too nonchalant when speaking on sin. Some of you have bad habits, you know, and it can get you into some trouble sometimes. The wages of sin is death. Joshua 7, they are doomed to destruction, God said to Joshua. Unless you put away the sinful thing from you, the accursed thing, you're doomed to destruction. He didn't say, you know, it's, it's going to be harder, but we can still get it done. You're doomed to destruction. And then he says in Joshua 7, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. People always say, you know, God is with you no matter what. Actually, God is accessible no matter what. But the Bible says, neither will I be with you until you destroy. He can't tolerate sin. God's promise to be with you is like made void when you deliberately, constantly are turning your back from. That's why James gives a call. He says, draw back near to God. Well, how can you draw near to something if that thing's are, if he's already with you? Obviously, there, now God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But what he's, he's saying is that in your heart, you got to draw near to God in obedience. Listen to this. Job chapter 22. Job 22. So God's not with everybody. He's accessible by everybody, but he's not with everybody. He can't stand sin. He can't, he can't. The Bible says that how could you eat from the table of demons and the table of God at the same time? He can't coexist with sin. You'll either accommodate sin in your life or you'll do things to attract God's, God's presence in your life. Listen to this, Job 22. Acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Therefore, thereby, thereby good will come to you. Receive his instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your mouth, in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. So why does the Bible talk about returning? Because obviously, there is a period. I'm not saying if you screwed up once, God leaves you. There's a lot, there's the other side of the thing where it's like people are like paranoid that God's, God's left me, God's left me. No, if your heart is, I hate this, I'm, I'm, I'm turning from it. God, give me grace. Even if you screw up, the next week in the same thing. And you're, I hate it. Fewer and fewer times, you're gonna, it's going to happen. And then eventually, God will give you victory. And he can give you victory right now over that thing. But if you're clinging to that thing, I'm talking about, there's a difference between, you know, for example, there's a difference between I go out and I swear like a sailor and I, I constantly have swearing laced all throughout my vocabulary. Or if I'm... There's a difference between that person and another person who, when he's hammering something one time, he accidentally stubs his finger and he lets out some words that were not very edifying. One is a deliberate, willful, 
action. The other was accidental. Because some people are like, well, I, you know, I feel like I, may, I, I, I mess up sometimes. I, I make accidents and, you know, I, I get angry and I sin. I, I, I say some things I shouldn't have said. It's the very fact that you're talking like that shows that you're on the right path. Because if it was, you know, you're constantly getting angry and mistreating your wife, berating her because of your anger for something else and, and you, you know, you're okay with it. Yeah, th then there's some, <laughs> you're going to have to take inventory on what's in your heart. But if you're, if you're, if you're like, you've recognized it, I, I don't want, I hate that thing. I can't believe I did that. That's the right reaction that you should have. That's why I don't, people are like, this guy preaches that you can be perfect. You can keep to the path of perfection 100%. That doesn't mean that there won't be times where you, 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 know, you step out momentarily, but then you get right back on. You get back on track. That's what grace does. It empowers you to get back on track. Grace is not you know, a, a cord that God puts on you while you're wayward and strain way off course. Grace is you know, the greatest form of God's grace. Actually, I'll tell you something. The greatest form of God's grace is conviction. Don't do that. Grace is always preached from the angle that once you've screwed up, you know, God's grace will bring you back on track. And that's true. But the greatest expression of God's grace is when he warns you, don't do it. That's a great, the greatest expression of God's grace because it, it saves you. It, it, it spares you from the consequences of that mistake. So if you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. You'll, you will remove iniquity, sin, far from your, your tents. So the Bible says you can return, return to God. The severity of sin is not... Sin separates people from God. That's not preached very often. As I said before, a lot of times they make it like it's like, you know, bad character traits or whatnot. It's... It is a repulsive thing to God, and it brings separation. That's what Adam, Adam's sin, it stripped God's glory from their life, and he saw he was naked. Sin will strip you. Sin will strip you of your God-given dignity. Sin will strip you of actual, like true godly pleasure. Sin will strip you of peace, strip you of joy, strip you of of, of every good thing that God has to offer. Proverbs 5 says, aliens will be filled with your, your wealth, strangers, and your labor will go to the house of a foreigner. Everything you've worked up, sin will, will, will remove. When you mourn at last, the Bible says in Proverbs 5, which sin brings depression. It attracts sorrow. The Bible says, many sorrows will come to him that hastens after other gods. Your flesh and your body will be consumed. That's in Proverbs 5 and Psalm 107, 17 through 20. Your flesh and your body will be consumed. It has a physical effect. Psalm 32, uh, David said, my vitality was drained away like the summer heat. Sin will affect your body. Your energy levels will, de will deplete. Penalty of sin is not, you're going to be unhappy for some time. You know, you could be happier in life if you didn't do those things. The penalty of sin is death. Spiritual death soul, solical death, and physical death. 
It affects the tripartite being. So any preaching that lowers the severity of sin, they're actually undoing what the Holy Spirit's trying to do to an individual. Good preaching should actually accelerate sanctification. It should get people to desire total alignment with the work of the Spirit. Not be okay with what they're doing. Preaching shouldn't undo the work of the Spirit in sanctification. The Holy Spirit's convicting them. They feel bad about it. They want to turn from it. And then, you know, some guy gets up and just tells them, you know, how many of you know uh, sin might make you unhappy? The guy's going to be like, well, I'm okay with being unhappy for a while. Think of it. If, if the penalty for running a stop sign was $25, who, how many people would run stop signs? Everybody would run a stop sign. If the penalty for running a stop sign was death by electric chair, <laughs> nobody would run a stop sign. That's why God makes the penalty strong. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, Ezekiel 18, shall die. To, to, to motivate people, the consequence is actually a motivation to not do it. And when people don't emphasize, when they don't emphasize that, it breeds a, a generation that's okay with it. Sin has both temporary consequences and eternal consequences. Temporary is, like I said, depression, all those things. Anxiety. I'm not saying if you have anxiety, it's because you're living in sin. I'm just saying that that could be one of the, the, the byproducts of, of sin. Phys sickness can come. Unrepented sin can bring sickness. I mean, think of it. Uh, you know, if you, if you constantly are overeating and gluttonous, and then the doctor diagnoses you with something. That's not because God left his hedge of protection away from you. You got to control your eating habits. If you smoke every day and you don't take care of your temple, what do you think is going to happen? If you do crack for the next 14 days, how do you think you're going to feel? It's going to physically weigh on you. It's going to physically weigh in on you. So there's temporal and then there's eternal, which is hell. Lazarus and the rich man, Luke chapter 16 tells you that. Hell's not a fictional place. Hell's a literal place. There's a literal place called hell. And there'll be a lake of fire where the devil and his angels will be cast into. It was not made for people. It was not made for you and I. It was made for the devil and demons. God sent Jesus to prepare a place for you in heaven. And this is where I'm finishing off. You need to get saved. If you're holding on to things in your past and the Adamic nature and things, and things that you haven't released, sinful habits, sinful things that you've, you've not detached yourself from, put sin away before sin kills you. This is, a, this is, a, a, this is God's grace to you. You know, the Bible says if anyone wanders from the truth, then let someone else who's strong Direct them back on the path. For he that does that will save a soul from death. That's what I did this broadcast for. I wanted, I wanted you to know that if you're struggling with anything, and, you've, and I believe there's very sincere people watching me now, that you've, ne you've not wanted to do the things that you've done, but you don't know how to stop. I just told you, Romans 6. It's not you don't, have, you don't know how to stop. It's the Holy Spirit has given you one of the benefits of redemption is 
a God-given dominion over sin. You have dominion over sin. Change your confession. Change your life. I want to go through, actually, before I give an altar, uh, a call to, to, to salvation, I want to go through the three things you're going to have to do if you want to practically live out. Because it's one thing to just confess it, you know, I'm not a slave to sin, but there's practical things you can do. One is avoid close com companionship with people who delight in sin. Bad company corrupts good morals. The Bible says the righteous man should choose his, where, his ways carefully. Be careful who you hang around. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There's nothing wrong with evangelizing to unbelievers. There's nothing wrong, uh, you know, you spend a, like a, you know, you have a family reunion. There's some people there that have shady lives or whatever. You hang out with them there. No problem. At family reunions, whatever. But to have close companionship with people that are delightful, uh, delightfully sinning, that are intent on going in the opposite direction as you, You'll never arrive at the destination of holiness if you're constantly holding hands with people that are intent on going the opposite direction. Don't be unequally yoked. Number two, stay in the word of God. Stay committed to the word. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. The word of God actually generates in you a spiritual power to resist sin. It gives you stamina to run the race that is set before you. Psalm 19, the Bible says that the commandments of the Lord are clean. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. It talks about the word's power in keeping you right. It talks about how, um, let me read it actually. Psalm 119, uh, Psalm, Psalm 19, sorry. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. More to be desired are they than gold? Moreover, by them your servant is warned. So the word of God puts something in you. So at any time there's a temptation to do something wrong, the word of God is like, it, it like flags a red flag and says, no, don't do it. And it guides you in the right way. So that you avoid the traps of the enemy. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there's great reward. Sin brings great grave consequences. Righteousness brings great reward. The Bible says, He that sows in sin shall reap in, 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 uh, in trouble, shall reap in, in sorrow. But whoever sows in righteousness shall have a true reward. So number two, stay in the word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then number three, and I finish with this, is prayer. Prayer divinely connects you to the Holy Spirit whereby you receive a transmission. You know, he's called Holy Spirit. Why? Because the very first thing he does is keep you holy. You receive that, that transmission of, of sanctification power that enables you to, that enables you to, to, to keep moving forward. You do those three things, I'm telling you, you, sin won't have the level of influence it has on you. Monitor your environment. Don't hang around people that are intent on going in the opposite direction. Number two, get in the word. Absorb it. Eat it up. Like I read in Job 22, lay up his word in your heart. Then you'll return to the Almighty and you'll be built up. 
And then number three, pray. Pray always that you enter not into temptation. Romans 13 says, pray always that you may be counted to worthy to escape those things that are coming on the earth and to stand before the Son of Man. Hallelujah. If you're watching right now and you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you have, and you've fallen astray, and you're not living a life that, and you know, Nobody has to tell you anything. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know that you're not living right. Now's not a time to play around. Jesus is coming back. The days are getting darker. But this is, I believe, a final call that God is sounding an alarm throughout planet Earth, bringing people in through every medium, through online ministry, live person, whatever. God is sounding the alarm. Prepare to meet your God. Because he's coming back for those whose garments are white and glistening. That could only happen through Christ. I said it before and I'll unashamedly say it until Jesus comes. And that is there's no other way to heaven. There's no other way. The prerequisite to making the rapture of Jesus Christ, of the church of Jesus Christ, is are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? Have you been have you have you dived into the crimson flow of, of the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you repented of sin? Have you turned? The Bible says, turn from your wicked ways. Repent and turn. Do you love darkness or do you do love light? The one who loves light, the Bible says, will come to God. And that's my call to you right now. Come to Jesus today. Don't let another day go by where you tolerate sin in your life. Cut it out before it cuts you out of the land of the living. Pray this with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess Jesus is my Lord. I turn to you. I come to you humbly. Wash me by your blood. Forgive me of all sin. Give me power to walk right, talk right, to do right. Not by might, not by strength, but by your spirit. And I'll live for you all the days of my life. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to get in contact with me. Go to salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is I just got saved. If someone can write that in the comment section, that'd be great. I just got saved. Fill it out. There's a YouTube video at the bottom of the page. I have a gift that I want to send to you free of charge. So fill that form out. You're going to send it to you. If it's your first time decision or a recommitment, you've never given your life, uh, you, you, you've given your life to Christ before, but you're, you're rededicating your life. You're getting realigned back with God's purpose for your life. I want you to fill that out. I want to get something to you, a Bible, some other reading material, free of charge as a way of saying, welcome to the family of God. I look forward to hearing from you. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji, or visit us online www.salvationnow.ca God bless you and until next time.